I'm Jeff Cohen. Sasha Silver has pursued a double life in music. As a talented pianist, she's performed at some of the most prestigious venues around the world. She's also a collaborative pianist and vocal coach. Through her musical journey, Sasha took a deep dive into Judaism and now lives an observant lifestyle. Sasha, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you for having me. So as much as I want to dive into your amazing musical career, let's talk about Judaism at the beginning. Just give me a sense of where you were born and raised. I was born in New York City. My parents came from former Soviet Union. My mom came from Moscow and my dad came from Lvov. And uh, they met in New York. And so I was raised in a home where it was very important to us that we're Jewish. We should never deny it. And that's kind of where it stopped. There were little things now looking back that uh, my grandmother had the, the fruit jellies on Pesach. And there were different things, <laughs> but, but very, very um, light. Just give me a sense of like when you're saying you had just a little bit like you knew you were Jewish. Were you doing anything like in terms of did you ever go to shul? Did you have any celebrations as far as the holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Pesach? Were you doing any of those things as a child? A little bit. When I was six years old, my mom lost both of her parents within a year. And after that, I have a memory of her, uh, both my parents, but really my mom feeling very connected to having to be at Yisker services on Yom Kippur. On Rosh Hashanah, not really. I feel like maybe there was apple and honey involved somewhere. Some years, if we weren't busy with other things, it wasn't a priority. I remember a very specific Pesach meal that we were invited to by a professor in the town that we were living in, and we ate on the floor. And now I realized it was a Yemenite man who invited us, and I feel like maybe there were Olympics on the TV at the same time, that kind of situation, but very light, very little exposure. But I heard about it somehow. In New York, it's impossible to completely live in a bubble, and yet I knew very, very little and was exposed very little. So did you have a circle of friends who were Jewish but not observant, or did you have friends that were all different religions? Both. I went to a Methodist Christian high school, private school, the kind that you see in the movies with the campus and the nice cars. I was a scholarship student, so. And I was one of the five Jewish students at the school. We were required to sit at chapel services once a week. And because we were Jewish, we weren't forced to listen. We could sit in the very, very back and have our homework with us. And because I was the token performer, very often I was performing for them on the piano. So I even learned about Native American philosophy and culture more than I did about Judaism at the time. And so you just mentioned piano. So when did the interest in music first start? Well, my mom, Alia I just lost her just over a year ago, unfortunately. I'm sorry. Uh, was a concert pianist, and she was my teacher since I was very, very little. My aunt convinced her to start teaching me because I kept going to the piano and wanting to play. And very early on, I was performing all over. Uh, my mom used to drive me to, to Canada for private lessons and for performances, and it was our religion, so to speak. You know, I had so many friends growing up where the parents put them in some kind of music lessons. Like everybody either was doing piano or guitar or the drums. Like everybody had that lesson once a week. But I wonder, so many of us, it doesn't catch on. And we feel like it's a chore. And we feel like our parents are forcing us to do that. And then there's someone like you who, who seems like they're falling in love with it and wanting more. What, what do you think separates the kind of kid who views this as a chore versus, wow, this is really something I enjoy doing? Uh, 
Uh, you're asking the wrong person because I really <laughs> loved doing it. Um, I loved performing. However, it was a very complex relationship because my mom was a t my teacher and it was very involved. It was lots and lots of hours. It wasn't necessarily always what I wanted to be doing. I would much rather have had more of a social life at the time, but it's something that's innate at the end of the day. It's something when I was in front of the piano and I had someone to perform to, uh, the more people, the better. I didn't really enjoy playing for two people. I don't, I, that's not something I, but for a hall, it would just come out and I needed to say what I needed to say at the piano. So is there a point in your childhood where you're even thinking, this is going to be more than a hobby, something I enjoy doing, I could actually make a career out of this? The goal was to make a career out of it, but I don't know that it was my goal. <laughs> it's complicated. I That whole world is also very competitive based on not only merit, but connections. And mm -hmm. that is something that really turned me off. It turns me off of in any industry when I see that, when it's about connections and I, it bugs me when when things are kind of not done in a straightforward way so it really turned me off and also having to learn to live or earn a living from something that some days you're not feeling it and it should be your passion was very hard for me and uh, I actually that's why I started to move into collaborative performance and work with opera singers and that led me into all the work that I was doing in the in the film industry as a musician and as a coach. So I was very happy to be using that experience as a performer in a way that I was happy to learn, earn my living, but also not take away from that very special place that just performance had for me. So you just mentioned this transition from performing and playing piano and now getting into the film industry. So how did that happen and, and what kind of role are you playing in film? So when I was living in Europe. I had been performing as a soloist, but also doing a lot of collaborative work, coaching opera singers under this mentorship of Mary Lafreni. And when I started out doing the film industry, opera singers are essentially singing actors. And um, I was working with very, very professional singers. This were, these were not beginners. We were basically polishing performances uh, for when they would go and perform and making them stage ready, helping them with their technique, also a lot of dialect work. So somebody had heard that I was doing this and heard that I have the solo piano performance background and then realized I had the same size and build and coloring as a specific actress named Felicity Jones and summoned me for an audition to choreograph the movements for Felicity Jones as a pianist in a film and double her and record for the soundtrack and it was a very very cool experience and from that opportunity uh, Felicity invited me to coach her for several films afterwards. I'm very 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 into this kind of coaching. And so I want to get into some of these other ways that you make a living. But before we do that, I want to go back to as you're being raised and you're becoming more and more talented on the piano. At the same time, are you not having a bat mitzvah or any going to Hebrew school or any of the things that even a lot of secular Jews would be doing? Yeah, I had a choice to do to have a bat mitzvah, have a little party, or I had an opportunity to perform with a little chamber orchestra and I chose B. And it is what it is. I had a bat mitzvah later on here in Jerusalem. <laughs> <laughs> Better late than never. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you're, you're into the teen years, 
and you clearly have this talent. So do you now pursue it as you're getting ready for college? Oh, yeah. My mom and I sat down with the dean of my high school, arranged for the last hour, hour and a half of school to be study hall or electives that I could just get out of or do at home. We were living outside of the city at the time um, in New Jersey. And we were driving in every day for rehearsals and auditions. And there wasn't a question that I was going to go to conservatory. And that's what I did. So where did you go to school? I went to Johns Hopkins University, within which is the Peabody Conservatory of Music. And I was there. I did my bachelor's and my master's in five years. It's impressive. And then you decided you wanted to tour and like put the musical talents uh, to use and let the world hear what you have to offer. The year of my master's, I started to feel, and this kind of translates into the rest of my life, I was working on all this music, studying this music that was composed in Europe 150, 200, 250 years ago. I decided basically going into my master's year that after I finish, I really want to spend time in Europe and be in the places that inspire these composers that I'm spending all day with to give me more context, to be able to go deeper. And so I decided to move to Europe, essentially. I didn't want to only do solo performances. At the time, somebody thought, because I speak a bunch of languages, somebody thought that I would be great at coaching opera singers. And I had zero experience with it. But I caught on very quickly. My roommate across the hall had this extraordinary voice, and now she has a major career in Europe. And she encouraged me to get in touch with a program in Italy. Um, it uh, was led by Mirella Freni, which is the female equivalent of Luciano Pavarotti, which more people will know the name of. Um, and they sang together their whole careers. And this extraordinary program, I was honored to be invited to it at the end. And, and I was able to basically juggle a few different things. I was living in Italy a few weeks at a time. And then I was in Paris for solo opportunities. And I was traveling all around Europe, really just soaking it in. It was either that, go back to New York around skyscrapers that have nothing to do with it and just be in this competitive atmosphere that I've seen suck the life out of musicians over and over again. I just didn't want that to happen. I wanted to go in that direction. And um, it was a really special time. So let's take a moment now to bring your musical talents to life and share with our listeners a sample of you playing the piano. So tell me about the piece we just heard. That is the Bach Buzoni Shekon. I was obsessed with this piece of music. I, at the time that I selected it, I had created a whole program actually of compositions that were inspired by compositions. So variations, and this was a theme by Bach that was then expanded on and romanticized by Buzoni. So 
I just loved it. I loved the way that it felt in my hands. I loved the way that I felt performing it. It, it was special to me. So where and when did you perform it? Uh, must have been. I don't remember. I feel like it was in Baltimore. So were you going back and forth between Europe and the United States? Because you said you have family in the United States. Yeah. I made sure to come and visit as much as possible. And there's a funny story. I happened to be at an expat Christmas party at the Ritz Hotel in Paris, spending time with some friends. And somebody approached me and told me they had heard that I'm from New York. And had I been to Steve Eisenberg's Parsha class on the West Side, to which I answered, what's a Parsha? I don't know what a Parsha <laughs> is. Don't know what you're talking about. And this whole, this whole thing led into a discussion uh, with this person. They made sure to follow up with me when they knew I was going to visit my family. And when I got to New York, I was like, you know, what? I'm going to check this out. I've never been to a, a Parsha class, Parsha being uh, the Torah portion of the week. I, I hadn't learned any anything about uh, Torah at all in my life. And not only did he encourage me to go to the class, but um, also requested that when I go back to Paris, that I bring along a book by Rabbi David Aaron called Endless Light. And so I read it on the flight back. So I felt for the first time like I had heard something that spoke to me in a completely new way, in a very honest way. And I could not get enough of those classes. I, every time I was coming back to New York, I would go. I found more classes. So I wasn't just going to Steve's classes after a while. I found all the different classes on the West Side. It was really just for me. It was me time and I was growing and it was, it was something that was very special for me. Are you approaching it like, I just want to learn about Judaism? Or are you thinking, I'm learning things that I might want to adopt in my life? I don't feel like I ever thought to myself that it was just a hobby or just a, a new passion to learn about, a new subject to learn about. It was so relatable. Like, of course, I'm going to apply this to my life. And those that know Steve will agree. When you go to a class of his, it's not like it stops there. So then there's uh, invitations for Shabbos meals in the community. And, oh, you're traveling. Oh, you're in the middle of Germany. Okay, we're going to find you a meal there. Like, you will never be alone for a Shabbos if you don't want to. So to answer your question, I wasn't only going to the classes after a while. I was, I was also seeing families get together for Shabbos meals, where people would sit down at the table with no phones, and whatever happened in their week, everybody's sitting, talking to each other. It was a completely new experience for me that I couldn't get enough of. I didn't do any big changes this whole time. I didn't uh, decide from one day to the other that I wanted to live like this. I would see, every time I would go to somebody's home, be like, wow, I really love the way this couple talks to each other. Wow, did you see that kid? He's nine years old and he comes every time, mommy this, mommy that. Like, I would sometimes also be invited to come and like help big challah or just come and hang out or like on a Wednesday, on a Thursday, and I would come in jeans and I would come as myself. And it was great because I just felt straight up welcomed and able to experience all of it with no pressure. So I have to believe, though, a world traveler like you, all these places you're going, at some point someone says, oh, you have to go to Israel. Like you've talked about the meals and you've talked about the books you're reading and you're experiencing Shabbos, all this stuff. So somebody along the way probably says, how about a stop in Israel? Uh, that came a little later. People mentioned it, but uh, it wasn't yet feasible. This is like a span of probably four years, I would say. Unfortunately, when I started considering going to Israel for a birthright trip, while I still qualified, that coincided with my mom's cancer diagnosis. 
And so I canceled that trip right away. And I was with her for a very challenging moment. The following year, I was already basically as old as it gets to qualify for birthright. And I got an email and they told me that there was a last minute donation for people that had to cancel for legitimate reasons, like completely random, but what's Mm -hmm. random. But your exact Um, situation. Exact situation. It was a, a whole group of people that either were just about to be too old or had to cancel for legitimate reasons or whatever. It was a bizarre, but I decided to cancel everything for the next month in New York when it was things were busy. And I was already hiding the fact that my kitchen was mostly kosher with a few tray plates on top of each shelf so that if I had my parents come and they wanted to take something from my fridge and it wasn't, I'm not sure what they're going to do, it was fine. Um, so I had Wait, this whole... you're, you're hiding it because you're not ready to tell your parents that you're making these changes in your life? There was about a year plus where I had already slowly, slowly, slowly started to keep Shabbat. There was a moment where I tried to take everything on very quickly and that didn't stick and it went kind of backfired. So you have this opportunity to go to Israel, but your parents also don't quite know about some of the observance that you're taking on at this point. So take me inside that moment of your life, what it's like with your parents and this decision to go to Israel. I basically sprang birthright as an opportunity on them. So I don't know, whatever, I'll be back in 10 days. Uh, maybe I'll extend for another week. It's August. It's fine. Like, don't worry. I'm not going to lose any of my clients. At that point, they didn't realize that for almost a year, I had stopped working on Shabbat. And everyone said that I was crazy because in the music, in, in the performance world, everything's on the weekends. Everything's Friday night, Saturday night in the summer, Shabbat ends late. And people thought I was crazy. But when I did it, I had double as much work during the week. And I didn't regret a single time that I didn't take a performance opportunity on Shabbat. So anyway, so back to Israel. So all this is happening in the background. My phone for a year magically was breaking every Shabbat whenever my parents were trying to reach me. (laughs) I I don't know why I felt like I needed to hide all of this from my family, that I was observing Judaism to this extent already. They knew that I was going to Shabbat meals. They knew that I was close with certain families. I invited them. They would come with me to certain meals where I thought that they would enjoy it. But knowing what I know about how they grew up in the former Soviet Union and all that brainwashing and what religion is, dogma, and the secular perspective, a lot of people think that women have not much of a voice and not much of a role and and it's completely off base. And I was scared of whatever their reaction could be. And so then this opportunity to go to birthright sprung up. I left. I think my parents weren't even in town I think it was like really naughty. The whole thing was a bit rebellious and they weren't even in town. I was like, listen, I'll be back. We'll see you at the end of the month. And three, four days in, I was already feeling more and more myself. But when I got here, I felt completely myself. I can't explain it in a rational way. I felt amazing to be in a country of Jewish people. And so I decided to prolong the trip. First, by three months, I decided, you know what, this is my opportunity. I'm, not, I'm never going to have this opportunity again. I'm in my early, mid-20s, and I'm not married at the time. I wasn't married at the time. 
I canceled everything. And I was like, listen, I have a little bit saved up. Let's go. I'm going to go and, and spend a few months and really build a foundation of knowledge for my family in the future. So that was the next chapter. So at what point in this journey, is it while you're in Israel or later on that your future husband comes into the picture? <laughs> Birthright was over on Sunday and I met him the following Thursday. <laughs> so, Where did you meet him? So I asked for directions from my now husband, Daniel, and he had just come back from a trip in Paris. He's from Paris originally. I lived in Paris, so I speak French. He lived in New York, so he speaks English. And we started speaking. We spoke for five hours, and then the rest is history. Wow, but where was the meetup? Is in Israel, or you, you were back in the States? In Israel. This was four days after birthright ended, and I had decided to extend my stay to learn and stay in Jerusalem and, and find... Um, a seminary to continue with some Jewish studying. And what was his level of, of observance when you met? He grew up uh, observant. Oh, okay. So how, what were those conversations like where, so he's observant and you're kind of on your own journey. Is he fine with the fact that you weren't raised this way? Is he trying to like figure out just how observant you are? What are those conversations like during the kind of the early parts of getting to know each other? There was never any judgment. Daniel grew up in Paris, so he didn't grow up in uh, in a box. He grew up studying with very, very serious Rebbeim and at the same time going to the movies and knows both worlds. And, and here I was having grown up in the world at large and I know exactly which direction I was going. I already knew. I was very clear that I already knew where I was going and I was already observing Shabbat and I was already at a certain level. So being able to understand all those facets of his culture, his perspective on life and we got each other and that was something that to this day actually enriches our relationship I think you're talking to me from Israel and in your story you're telling me I was going for a week I extended <laughs> I extended I extended do, do you ever come back or did you just stay there for good and get married there actually where I chose to study a bit the director of the school was extremely supportive of me first of all traveling to visit my family and also I had a lot of opportunities for work at the time, I had started working in the movie business a year before I came to Israel. And I had all these opportunities come up. So I was traveling even while I was here. So I was based, I was calling it uh, my base for a while. And then eventually, a couple years later, I officially made Aliyah and became an Israeli citizen. But yeah, it, 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 for all intents and purposes, I, <laughs> I came on birthright and I stayed. And then I got married. But somewhere along this part of your story has to be a conversation with your parents where you're saying this is going to be my life because you were mentioning that you were hiding some of these things and not being totally honest with exactly where you were in this journey so at what point do you kind of open up more to your family and say this is where I want to live and how I want to live so that wasn't one conversation that was many 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 conversations <laughs> I'm sure it was, it was very difficult a lot of that difficulty is my own fault Maybe, and I, I'll never know, but maybe had I been more forthcoming from the beginning and sharing it and making it a little bit more normal to them in the beginning and not having sprung this on them, it probably would have been easier for them. And that was my mistake. I did tell that to my mom over the last few years. We became extremely close uh, in the last few years before she passed away. And she kind of agreed with me. It was very hard for them to see me doing something differently it was very tough it was very tough to bring them on board with something that they don't really know so much about and what I'm grateful for is that 
definitely with the years, definitely once I got married and um, my parents saw the way that we built our home, the way that we invite people into our home, the way that our kids now are growing up. Unfortunately, my mom never got to meet uh, my baby, but my she was extremely, extremely close with my now four and a half year old. And she got to see him, his upshare and his haircut at three years old over Zoom and how he knew the alphabet and being able to say all of his brachas which so with so much love and so much enthusiasm and she loved it she appreciated it and there was no more judgment and so ultimately I got where I wanted to be with that relationship but it definitely took a lot of time so let's let's go now back into the musical side of you so I, I find interesting that somebody who chooses to become observant if they're working in a corporate job the biggest challenge might be that I have to leave early on Friday or there's some holidays that you would never have heard of and I'm going to need to take those off. But like you mentioned, when you're a performer, Friday night, Saturday is like big time performing days. So I'm wondering how much did that play into some of the adjustments you made in your career and some of the other things you've gotten into now in terms of being a coach and getting into film? So the film work that I've been doing, it's been over the last almost 13, 14 years and I'll tell you what a major, major lawyer uh, in the Hollywood industry told me when I sat down and emailed her all the dates. I was working at the time on a Star Wars movie. It was a six-month project. I sent her every single candlelighting time, time that I would need to be back in London because we were shooting outside of London. So that was an hour, hour and a half commute. And we're outside of Israel, so two-day yontif that I needed to include and all the timings of that. And I was like, they're never going to give me this contract. Disney is never going to agree. And what she answered, and I've taken this with me and I don't forget it. She told me if this is going to be their problem, they have bigger problems coming to them. And that gave me all the confidence (laughs) that I ever needed. And I quite spoiled for having had that experience. And I don't believe that everyone is as lucky, but I also made a decision that if I don't get the contract, then it's not for me. And there were people on set that looked at me cra- like I was crazy because I was leaving work at 10, 30 or 11 in the morning because in London, Shabbat in November, December starts extremely early, like lunchtime. And there were times where the moment I had an alarm go off for the moment Shabbat was over and I had to, I had 10 minutes to get ready and I had a car outside to go back onto set and that was something that I was completely enthusiastic about taking on because at the end of the day, like I wasn't looking for a vacation every week. This is something that I believed in and it's something that means tremendous amount to me and I wasn't going to sacrifice it, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to give up on the job. And I really feel like it's so important for everyone to know that it's possible. I'm dying to know what's on the horizon for you in the coming years, professionally and personally. Did you know about Corona two years ago? <laughs> so I don't know. Nobody did. Nobody, nobody did. Uh, so uh, it definitely has shifted some plans. I made a decision consciously when I had my first child that I don't want to be traveling uh, for extended periods of time away from my family. I want to be present in my kids' lives. That being said, if there's uh, an exciting opportunity, I would <laughs> love to uh, continue to work. I've produced a film already in Israel, a short film, but I would love to start working in the Israeli film industry. I'm very curious about how the Israeli religious versus secular, and I really hope to to work here. There's so many stories to be told, so I really hope to produce eventually. And the big project is to bring my 
grand piano over from New York, which I still haven't been able to do. Please God soon, maybe this year. So you have some amazing, ambitious plans, which is wonderful. So before I let you go, I'm going to ask you our five lightning round questions, okay? Okay, let's go. All right, first one. What is the coolest place around the world you ever performed? I guess in Switzerland, Victoria Hall, it was just stunning. What do you find stunning about Victoria Hall? Just the architecture, the lighting. It just feels surreal and otherworldly and from a different era. Okay, and what about in Israel? What's the best venue to play piano? I don't know. I've never performed in Israel. Really? Nope. Have you, so where do you, where's a good place to go to a concert? Where do you think is like the best place to see a performance? Uh, I'm very happy to go and hear music everywhere. It's not so much about the venue. It's about who's performing and what they're trying to communicate. Uh, what's your favorite Jewish musical piece to perform? To perform, I don't have, although I have to say at some point early on in this whole journey, so to speak, I thought maybe it's time to compose something inspired by the melodies of Shlomo Karlbach and do like the whole, I mean, this is ridiculous now that I, <laughs> now looking back, but doing like the entire story of like Bracious or something with, I don't know, something insane like that. Okay. Last question. What's a dish you like to prepare on Shabbos that traces back to your Russian roots? None. I do not like Russian food. I, <laughs> I, what I, I'll tell you about food. I cook Asian wow. food. I cook Middle Eastern food. I cook French and Italian, more Italian than French food. And I try to recreate dishes that I used to eat in non-kosher environments in my kosher kitchen. And that's really fun for me. I love, love, love spicy food. So yeah, we do not have a traditional home <laughs> in that sense, but it's fun. <laughs> Okay, you are officially out of the lightning round. And Sasha, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you for having me. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.